And I invite you now to turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 will be our passage uh, today. Last week, well, before I say that, let me, let me just say, I, I, I trust um, that, that all of us through this course of this series have been encouraged by our study in Revelation, that we've been challenged by it. Um, that it has been refreshing for you, that it has built up your confidence in your faith in Christ, that you've seen the glory of who Jesus is in Revelation. And I trust that because of what Revelation is, this is God's word given to us. And last week, or in the last couple of weeks, we have seen, uh, we were kind of introduced to this saying, um, of Satan, who is described as chapter 20, verse two, two, he's described as the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he was bound for a thousand years. The same description of Satan occurs earlier in Revelation in chapter 12, verse nine, with those same four descriptions, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and satan jesus says of this ancient serpent and by the way the ancient serpent should kind of draw your mind to if you're familiar with the basic contours of the bible story genesis 1 and 2 you have god creating the world creating culminating with the creation of humanity in his image and then in genesis 3 you see the serpent show up in the garden and so when John is using this language of ancient serpent, it's to, to make you get the connection with who it is that we're really talking about, the way he first appears in Scripture as that ancient serpent. Jesus says of this ancient serpent, the devil who is Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning, he says in John's gospel. He does not stand in the truth, Jesus says. There is no truth in him that he lies. He speaks out of his own character, meaning lying is essential to Satan's character. And Jesus says he is the, the liar and the father of all lies. This ancient serpent we saw in Genesis chapter 1, the first two things the Bible records this ancient serpent saying. And I think that these two challenges still manifest themselves in the world today. The first one was, did God actually say? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden? Did God really say that the punishment that if you did disobey him would come to you? First thing, challenging the word of God. And then the second thing, he says, when the woman says that if we that if we eat the fruit, we will die. And she adds to it, well, and we shouldn't even touch it or we would die, which is not what God said. The serpent says to the woman, the second one, you will not surely die. Challenging God's word 
and then getting people to think that there isn't a judgment for those who do. Getting people to believe that there will not be a coming judgment, a final judgment at the end of history when Jesus himself comes back to judge. All of the scripture is kind of leading up to this final climactic judgment when Christ returns. Jesus himself spoke of that judgment as the day of judgment on multiple occasions. And he said that every sinful deed, indeed, every careless word we will be uttered will be exposed on the day of judgment. The Apostle Paul, in preaching to a, a large congregation, a society of philosophers in Athens and attempts to present the gospel to them. He, call, he ends his speech with these words, the times of ignorance. The ignorance he's referring to is believing in lots of different gods in polytheism, not realizing that there's just one true God and that a judgment is coming. He says the time of ignorance God has overlooked but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because, he adds, he fixed a day on which to judge the world in righteousness okay, by a man whom he has appointed. A final judgment is coming. God has appointed and fixed that day. Paul is merely uttering what the prophets throughout the Old Testament and Jesus himself spoke of and then he adds this and he has uh, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead the resurrected Jesus Christ is the one who is going to come and will judge at the last day the final judgment the passage that we're going to read this morning is that final judgment so when it's spoken of throughout the scriptures and we've seen glimpses of it even in revelation and now we come to what john sees as the final judgment this is a reality that's in the scriptures and it's a shame to say that uh, maybe many of you may have not have heard this taught or preached or spoken of uh, in other ways because i think a lot of Preachers would avoid this topic, but as is our habit and is our custom here, we're going to go and follow through with what the scripture says and be honest about what it says. That there is a final event which will bring this world to a close. And this is called the, the final judgment or it's called the great white throne judgment. And you will see why as we read in our passage this morning. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So this morning, I would like for us to kind of look at and unpack this passage. And I'm doing so under four different headings or four kind of movements that we see in this passage. And the scene that's described here is one of, if you could kind of picture it in earthly terms, a a courtroom. How many of you have actually been in a courtroom? Uh, Hopefully as witnesses and not as somebody sitting on the in in, or in the jury, but not hopefully not on trial. Hopefully, Uh, hopefully not. This is uh, you will see this. This kind of has a, 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 a scene has the feel of like kind of a courtroom setting, but this is no courtroom. Uh, It's not a courtroom like anything that we would experience in earthly terms. So let me give you kind of the four points and we'll go through each one of these. This is the courtroom and it is the courtroom of Christ. We'll see in verses 11 and 12. You have the summoning of the accused in verses 12 and 13. Also in 12 and 13, you have the charges of the crimes committed. And then lastly, the verdict and sentencing rendered. In verses 14 and 15. So first of all, the courtroom of Christ in verses 11 and 12. John says, then I saw, and again, this is to, to uh, he s- says this phrase, and then I saw multiple times throughout Revelation. And it's, uh, it's saying that a new kind of scene, like the scene has changed, and he's now have kind of a new part to a vision, maybe not a new vision entirely, but a new part to this vision that he sees that encompasses all of revelation and then he says i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it now this throne we've seen many times in revelation and all throughout revelation this throne this imagery of a throne has the uh, conveys the idea of sovereign reign sovereign rulership but here there's a, another aspect to it that uh, that we're seeing that is included in this sovereign reign or sovereign rulership. And that is uh, of, of judgment, of bringing, hearing the cases and hearing the arguments of a case and now bringing a judgment or a verdict on something. Okay, so here in our country, we have kind of a separation of powers. We have the executive branch and then we have the judicial branch and the legislative branch. But in days past, usually the, executive branch so to speak and the judicial branch were kind of all under one king or one realm and that is the picture here so that's what is the throne it's great this is not saying it's bigger than any of the other thrones that he'd seen in revelation this is just saying uh this is its significance of this throne the absolute finality of this throne and it is white Conveying the idea of purity uh, and accuracy of judgment. And also because of the judge who was seating on the throne. And look at what it says. And a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now, if you would, let's go back through Revelation and just kind of remind ourselves who it is that we see seated on this throne. Dozens of times we've seen this beginning chapter four. Where John sees he gets a picture into heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice which had, I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you must, what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Okay. Again, jump down to verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne. Again, in, t- in verses 10 and 11, the 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So you're starting to see a little bit of who this one who is seated on the throne is. Clearly from the context, we would see that this obviously is referring to God, the one who lives forever and ever. Verse 11, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were they existed and were created. So this is God, the creator, God, the everlasting one, the eternal one who has always existed. Notice in chapter five, verse one, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll. Jump down to verse seven. And he went and took the scroll. This is the lamb. Took the scroll from him who was seated on the throne. Again, verse um, 13. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne. And notice the addition here. How the lamb is now added in and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Okay. Notice that the lamb is included in with this one who is seated on the throne. And it happens throughout the rest of Revelation 2. The next chapter, chapter 16, uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 16, where it says uh, the people were saying when the wrath of the lamb was coming, they said, fall on us and hide us mountains and rocks. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. And again, we could go through multiple places here. So you have the one who is seated on the throne is the creator. The one who is eternal, who exists forever and ever. But then as revelation progresses, you have it's the one seated on the throne and the lamb. They both have this throne, signifying the, the deity again of Christ, which fulfills the words that he said, that Jesus said to the churches, especially to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, the one who conquers, this is the words of Jesus here, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay. So this is the courtroom indeed of Christ. Christ is the one who is to judge. Jesus through his death and his resurrection now has been granted all authority to judge. And Jesus himself actually even said this in his Gospels. John chapter 5, verse 21. It says, for the Father judges no one. Jesus says this. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He goes on a few verses later, verse 27. And he has given him, the meaning God the Father has given him 
authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Okay? So this is the courtroom of Christ that we're experiencing, that we're seeing here in this opening setting. This is the courtroom of Christ because Christ is God. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will come and he will issue judgment. Now, some of you might go, wait, doesn't it say anywhere that Jesus said something about I do not judge? Yes, that's true. When he was here on earth, he wasn't coming to bring his judgment. He was coming to bring his salvation. He was announcing the gospel. And after his death and resurrection, he ascended and he is going to come back to judge. As Paul said, that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world through the man who he has raised from the dead. So this is the setting. This is the courtroom. This is the courtroom of Christ. Another little thing I would like for you to notice about this courtroom is what it says in the last half of verse 11. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Okay? Now, what is this referring to? Well, this is referring to what the scriptures, both old and new, spoke of would happen to creation when Christ would come back. And this is the, the, the literal undoing of creation. Here's a couple of verses to keep in mind. The psalmist says this in Psalm 102. He says, of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. This is a song of praise to God as creator. You laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands, it says. They will perish, by the way, but you will remain. The point is that this material world, the material universe, both seen and unseen, will perish one day, and he's praising God for the constancy of his nature and who he was. God was there before the creation of the world, and he'll be there after its demise. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This is hinted at earlier in Revelation 2, this undoing of creation, chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14 when we have the opening of the sixth seal, great earthquake, the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And then verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from his place. That's how we know that sixth seal is describing the, the end because we're seeing it retold again here in twenty in chapter twenty. Also chapter sixteen, it speaks of every island fledding away, no mountains were to be found. Here you have the earth and sky fleeing away from his presence. This is what the old testament was describing as the end the undoing of creation when Christ will come back and set up his new creation that we're going to get to next week in chapter 21. So in order to have the new creation, you have the undoing of the existing one. And probably the best picture of this is seen in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I would invite you to turn there to 2 Peter chapter 3 because it's quite an extensive uh, description of it. And I'll start in verse 
5. Peter here is critiquing those who were kind of outside of the church or peripheral to the church in those days who were kind of mocking Christians because they kept speaking about Christ's coming and it coming eminently, but it had been several decades and it hadn't happened. And so they're mocking him and saying, why hasn't, why hasn't he come? And that's what he's addressing here in verse 4. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all the things are continuing as if they were from the beginning of the world. And so he says, in, again, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he says, these people, these critics, they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the, the flood in the days of Noah. And then he's equating that to the future one that's going to come. But by the same words, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay? Notice down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So the undoing of creation. And why is that? Why, why the undoing of creation? We have to, to remember the effect of what happened when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, right? Not only were they morally tainted from, it, from their sin and their rebellion against God, and that their Rebellion has now been uh, through, through given on to all of us. But the entire universe is affected by that sin. Right? It wasn't just that the woman was going to have difficulty and pain in childbearing and that the, the man was going to uh, have to work hard through the sweat of his brow and the cursing of the serpent that he's going to uh, crawl on his belly and eat dust it says that the the ground will produce thorns and thistles like creation is groaning and suffering the effects of the fall and that's why it needs to be undone that's why you need a new one that we'll get to in revelation chapter 21 so here we have the courtroom of christ you have this undoing of creation, and then now we get to the summoning, the summoning of the accused. And you see this in, in part of the first half of chapter 12 and this, the first half of chapter 13. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Okay. Well, who is the dead here? Is this obviously, um, there's kind of a debate that goes back and forth. Well, who was included here? Is this the dead of everyone? Are Christians included here? Uh, or is this just the wicked? Um, and if time permitted, I would you know, kind of unpack all of this, maybe the case for why this includes the wicked only. 
there's a there's an interesting case for why this includes the saved and the wicked and that there's a separating out um uh, let me just put it this way whether believers are there or not is the question what's not up for question is that the wicked are and so the dead here certainly includes the wicked the sea uh, it's interesting. What's this use of C? C symbolizes kind of the realm of evil. You know, the, the beast rising up out of the sea in, in chapter 13. It represents kind of the chaos that existed when God created the world. It says um, that the earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the surface of the waters. This is why uh, all throughout the Old Testament, there's kind of this terror and chaos associated with the sea or the ocean uh, or lakes, or, you know, there's just kind of a terror connected with it. And so it was kind of con the way it's connected here, what's connected with death and Hades is kind of this symbolizing. This is kind of the, the, the abode of the dead. It's the abode of the, the evil and the wicked. And all of those are every place where the dead and the wicked are will be emptied out and will actually be brought before Christ in his tribunal. And then notice this interesting statement here. Great and small. Great and small. This judgment of Christ before his great white throne is really the great leveler of all of humanity. It's the great leveler of all of humanity. You know, in, in earthly courts, sometimes the rich can get a, an advantage and the poor are taken advantage of. Okay? It's a reality in fallen systems, you know, fallen systems of the world today. I've heard uh, numerous stories about those who actually were innocent and couldn't get a fair trial and are, you know, were declared guilty even though they didn't do it. And we all have heard stories about rich and powerful people who seem to be... Uh, have Teflon when it comes to accusations against them or to have been uh, through their power or wealth or the influence able to get off when everyone would know they're, they, they're guilty. What I like about this is that in Christ's courtroom, when you're standing before the great white throne, there will be no miscarriage of justice. No amount uh, of uh, no high-powered attorney will, is able to get you off on a technicality when you're standing before the great white throne. The rich and the powerful will not be able to escape. This is the great leveler of humanity, the summoning of the accused. And all of them will come and have to stand before the throne. And then the charges of crimes are also uh, described in verses 12 and 13. Notice the second half of verse 12. And books were opened. And then this statement here at the end, the last sentence. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And again, to drive home his point, he repeats almost verbatim the same thing at the second half of verse 13, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
These pictures of books, uh, again, is drawing, as we've seen numerous times, from the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel sees this vision of the four, um, the four beasts, and each of those beasts representing one of the, the major world powers and the, in that day, and it says at the end of those, at the end of that, the latter half of that vision, he's sitting here thinking about what he is seeing when he's seeing these beasts with horns and uh, all of these things. And it says in verse nine, as I looked, thrones were placed. And this statement here, interesting, the ancient of days took his seat. What a, what a title for God, isn't it? The ancient of days. The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. These books, the record of all of the deeds of every single person who's ever lived. That's a database you don't want to see. These books at this time will be opened and that the dead will be judged by what is in them. What a great reminder for all of us that every deed Every deed that we commit is seen by Christ. So the charges of the crimes committed are brought. And then lastly, we would have uh, the verdict and the sentencing rendered. The verdict and the sentencing rendered in verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Three times this, this term is used, lake of fire. And he adds the Another descriptor to it, the second death, which you get to here in a moment. This lake of fire has already been defined as unending conscious punishment. Unending conscious punishment. This isn't the first time we've seen this term. We've seen it in chapter 19 a couple of weeks ago. Look at chapter 19, verse 20. Again, John sees a vision. I'll back up to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathering to make war against him who what was sitting, sitting on the throne on a horse and against his army. Okay. Verse 19, this beast is coming to make final war against Christ. And in verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
Okay, so you the, the devil's agents that were working on earth. Remember, it's kind of a, there's a satanic trinity I talked about many weeks ago. That God, that one true God is represented as one God who eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, Satan, seeking to imitate God, also has kind of a trinity in Revelation. Right? He's the dragon, or he's the, the, the devil. He's also, also has this beast and this false prophet. So the first two are thrown into this lake of fire in chapter 19, verse 20. Notice what it says in chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here you have this kind of satanic trinity thrown into this lake of fire. But they're not the only ones there. It's not just those three. We saw in verse 14 that it's also death and Hades, the abode of the dead. They also are thrown into the lake of fire, but it's not just them either. Notice what it says in next chapter, chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Or as John puts it concisely here in verse 15, anyone, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life they were thrown into the lake of fire this should be one of the the most tragic this is one of if not the most tragic passages of all of scripture that when christ comes back in all of his power in all of his glory and he comes back to Uh, to right all of the wrongs committed throughout all of history, to purify and restore all of creation. When he comes to do that, he has knowledge of every single deed committed by every single person throughout human history, and he will make it right. And he will throw the devil, he will throw the false prophet, he will throw the, the beast, he will throw death and Hades, and he will throw into this lake of fire, the second death, all who align with them. This is a tragedy. This is referred to as the second death uh, because the first death, obviously, is the physical death, right? Because it's, it says the dead are brought before the throne and are caused to stand before the throne. So this is the the physical death that comes. That's the first death. The second death is this final spiritual judgment. This is what 
is, are, are in those books, that scroll. But here's, there's another book. Back, go back to chapter 12. Excuse me. Chapter 20, verse 12. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Okay? There's books over here. Can you imagine? I mean, you would think Jesus would have had these computerized by now, right? Books opened. People standing there before the throne. And everything you've ever done is cataloged. But over here, there's another book. And he says of this other book, it is the book of life. Again, this is not the only time we see this book of life in all of the scriptures. In Exodus chapter, I think this is the first time we see this. In Exodus chapter 32, after Israel had committed this grave sin of making this golden calf, and God was going to wipe out all of Israel, Moses actually offered himself, and he said, I would rather you blot my name out of your book, he says. It's quite a picture, right, for Moses to offer to do that. Take me instead of all of the evil that Israel has committed. It's quite an offer, right? It's an offer God goes, great idea, not yet. Twice it mentions being blotted out of the book. Ezekiel mentions it. Luke chapter 10 also speaks of this book chapter 10 verse 20 Luke chapter 10 verse 20 when the disciples Jesus had sent out a large group of people to go and share this good news to make to do ministry and to to heal and to preach to preach about the kingdom and their power was uh, they were very effective in what it was that they were able to do And notice what they do in in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and, and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He goes, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in your ministry, the effectiveness of your ministry. Do not, do not rejoice in the fact that you have these unique kind of powers and abilities. He goes, this is what you should rejoice in. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's this other book. The one that Moses said, I'd rather you blot my name out of that book. The one that Jesus tells these disciples, you rejoice for the most important thing you could rejoice in, that your name is written in the other book. Paul even mentions it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. You can look that up. And also in Revelation chapter 3, we see the same mentioning of this book. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5.
Jesus' message to the church at Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The question today, is your name written in the book? Is your name written in the other book? Everyone will be raised and will face judgment. Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in, his, in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a final judgment that is coming for everyone. Paul says, Romans 2, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Now, I often get that and I go, wait a second. But I've heard that the gospel is that we're not saved by our works. That's true. You're judged on your works. You're judged because you're guilty. You're judged because you have committed these sins and wrongdoings. The principle remains. The principle is there. And no one is righteous. No, not one, it says. However, even though the dead who are apart from Christ will face that judgment, those who are in Christ have a different verdict. The dead who are apart from Christ will ultimately get what they want apart from Christ. But to those who are in Christ, Paul tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. We all know John 3.16, the two verses immediately after it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, right? That's true, his first coming. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There are two books, two sets of books. There's books and there's another book. The question is, is your name written in this book? And how you know? Because you've repented of your sin and you've turned to faith in Christ. You said to Jesus, I, Jesus, I believe in you. 
I believe that you suffered and died in my place. That you have come to earth so that I wouldn't have to experience the lake that burns with fire. That you suffered on a cross and were put into a grave so that I wouldn't have to face the second death. Not of any works of my own, but just trusting in you. That's what it takes. Question is, is your name written in that book? If you believe in Christ, it is. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, God, that you have led us through this very challenging passage. We're grateful, uh, God, for even though it speaks of a very harsh, difficult truths to face up to, that we are all guilty because all of us have wandered away from you. We've rejected your truth. We've sinned in a variety of ways. We've sinned by the things that we have committed that you've told us not to. We've sinned by not doing the things that we should do and you've told us to do. And we've done it multiple times in multiple ways. We've all sought to be our own ruler, leading our own lives, our own way apart from the guidance you give us as our creator. And so, God, we pray that we would repent of those those ways. We thank you that you've given us a glimpse to this dark truth of this judgment that is coming on this world. And God, we all know that we long for a day for justice to take place. We see injustices committed into the world and some of them we are grieved by and want to see righted. But you see every injustice, even the ones that we're blind to, and you will make them right. And for that, we are grateful. We know that the judgment is part of that. But God, we are grateful that when we believe in your son, Jesus, that we do not have condemnation. That despite what would be written in the scrolls about every deed and every careless word we've uttered, that the fact that our name is etched in your book, the book of the Lamb, the book of life, means we can rejoice on that day. God, I pray that the dark realities that we've read in chapter 20 will spur all of us on to share this amazing truth that you have provided a way of escape in your son Jesus because you have loved us. Help us, God, to be bold to share that truth. And we pray all of this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, Amen and amen.
Friends, if you would stand for our closing benediction. If you have any uh, questions about this passage or um, any of the passages that we read or uh, have any questions about um, the gospel, the good news of Christ, um, please feel free to come up and speak with me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father demonstrating, demonstrated in the sending of his Son and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with you as you go. Thank you.